I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 73 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Debbie Peterson, drummer and singer for the Bangles. To me, the Bangles represent a strange sort of success story. They released one of my favorite albums of 1984 and the 1980s in general, all over the place. The self-titled EP that preceded it is awesome too. In his book, Music, What Happened?, the late Scott Miller of the bands Game Theory and The Loud Family called the EP's kickoff track, The Real World, one of the decade's best songs. He wrote of the Bangles, those who know only Eternal Flame might be amazed at how inventive and together they were in their relative infancy. Growing up in Los Angeles, Debbie Peterson initially wanted to be a bassist or guitarist, but when her older sister, singer-songwriter-guitarist Vicky, needed a drummer for her new band, Debbie picked up the sticks. Classified ads connected the Petersons with another singer-songwriter-guitarist, Susanna Hoffs, plus bassist Annette Zelinskis. The four of them formed the Bangs, who became the Bangles when it turned out that there was another band with that shorter name. Boasting an affinity for 60s-inspired three-minute rock and pop songs, the Bangles became part of LA's Paisley underground scene, which included such bands as The Dream Syndicate, The Three O'Clock, and Rain Parade. The Bangles released their first single, Getting Out of Hand, in 1981, and the EP The Bangles followed the next year. I don't want to wait in line. Debbie had her first lead vocal and songwriting credit on the EP with I'm In Line. Zelinskis left and was replaced by bassist Michael Steele, formerly of The Runaways. When the Bangles set out to record their debut album for Columbia Records, the label paired them with producer David Kahn. Debbie Peterson has some not great memories of that experience. Still, she sings lead on one of the album's two singles, Going Down to Liverpool, written by Kimberly Rue of Katrina and the Waves. There's a story behind how Leonard Nimoy wound up in the video. Debbie also sings a cover of the merry-go-round's 60s pop nugget, Live. And the rest of the album features tough, taut, tuneful guitar songs from Vicki Peterson and Susanna Hoffs, including Tell Me, Restless, and the lead single, Hero Takes a Fall. It's a great album that you should own, but it wasn't a big seller. So when the Bangles were reunited with producer Khan to make the follow-up, the pressure for hits increased. The resultant album, 1986's Different Light, actually is all over the place. There are more punchy guitar songs, notably In a Different Light, as well as showcases for the quartet's intricate, sublime harmonies, like Let It Go. Yet those weren't the singles. Instead, the songs that made the Bangles famous have a different sound, and most weren't written by them. The keyboard-heavy Manic Monday came as a gift from Prince. If She Knew What She Wants was a synthy cover of a Jules Shear song. Liam Sternberg's quirky Walk Like an Egyptian became the biggest hit of them all. On that one, Debbie Peterson was the odd bangle out, as Khan awarded the three verses vocals to each of her bandmates. What's more, the producer opted for a drum machine over Debbie's drumming on that song and others. How did Debbie Peterson feel when Walk Like an Egyptian became the country's number one song for four weeks? Susanna Hoffs sang on all four of the album's singles, including the heavily produced Walking Down Your Street, as Khan and the label pushed her as the front woman of what had previously been a relatively democratic band. As a result, the Bangles became known for something other than their strong songwriting and tight group singing and playing. 
Does Debbie Peterson think the band would have been treated differently if they weren't all women? A hit cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Hazy Shade of Winter preceded the recording of the Bangles' third album, 1988's Everything, produced by Davit Sigerson. Peterson preferred this experience, but by then each member was writing songs with outside collaborators and taking turns appearing on each other's work. Debbie Peterson sang the album's third single, Be With You, which she co-wrote. That came after two more hits highlighting Hoffs, the peppy In Your Room and the massive power ballad Eternal Flame. What did Debbie Peterson think when she first heard that number one single? That phase of the Bangles soon ended in an office meeting filled with managers, lawyers, and musicians, two of whom wanted to embark on solo careers. Years later, the four of them patched things up and recorded a song for Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, which was directed by Hoff's husband, Jay Roach. A new album, Doll Revolution, followed in 2003 and was produced by Brad Wood. Another album, this time without steel, came in 2011 and was called Sweetheart of the Sun. Matthew Sweet co-produced. Their most recent recordings appeared on the 2018 album 3x4, in which the Bangles, the Dream Syndicate, the 3 O'Clock, and Rain Parade covered each other's songs. Does Debbie Peterson think the Bangles will ever perform or record together again? Does she look back on the band's history as a triumphant tale or something more bittersweet? She tells us in this candid, enlightening Pop conversation. And the most recent thing you did was that uh, that three by four record where you guys were covering the three o'clock and the Dream Syndicate and the Rain Parade. Um, yeah, that, that was fun because it was, I don't know, we were all just sort of emailing each other, like a million emails to say, let's do something. It's It's been a while. It's, it's time to get the Paisley Underground back together. <laughs> and, um, you know, even though we've all worked with different bands at different times since the Paisley Underground. So it was kind of like just this, Hey guys, why, why don't we just do a record and then we can do some shows together, which is pretty much what we did. And that came out in 2019. Yeah. So was that the last time you guys played together? Well, yeah, 2019 was pretty much the last time. It was not a particular thing, but we did a we did a festival uh, in May. I think it was May 2019. It was um, the Kaboo Festival. And that's pretty much the last time because after that COVID kicked in right. and then, you know, since then everybody's been doing different things. And when you started out, uh, I had seen that you, you originally wanted to be a bassist or a guitar player, but uh, your sister's <laughs> band needed a drummer. Pretty much. I mean, I kind of, I guess I was kind of an air drummer for a while, just listening to Beatle records and kind of air drumming, not realizing that's what I was doing. Um, but, but yeah, I wanted to be a bass player, a guitar player, you know, especially bass player, because I think the bass and drums work so well together that it was like my ears just kind of went towards bass and drums. And my brother was a drummer, so he was he was kind of like the drummer of the family, like the, the kid that gets the pots and pans out and starts bashing them in the kitchen and making a lot of noise and the parents going, oy vey. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he was, he was the one who did that, not me, but because I was kind of air drumming, I kind of could just figure out by listening how to actually do it. And I didn't ever do it until I, um, we had some friends that were in a band and, you know, we were hanging out with them and, 
went to the rehearsal. And this was when they were looking for a drummer. They had a female drummer before in their high school band, <laughs> which was kind of cool. Uh, but she didn't work out. So they were looking for somebody. In fact, Amanda, who was the bass player in that band, uh, suggested me. It's like Vicky. Oh, Vicky's little sister. Let's get her to try. <laughs> and so um, I, we went to a friend's rehearsal studio and I sat down. They said, okay, why don't you guys play? And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try. And I had a crush on the drummer at the time of that other band. <laughs> so I sat down at the drum set, not knowing what I was doing. And he got behind me and kind of put his arms around me and, and, you know, kind of grabbed my eyes. Okay. You do it like this. And meanwhile, I'm going, I'm beaming going, ah, oh, this is great. I, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, then we ended up playing, I think it was Linda Ronset's version of Heatwave. So, and I, and I guess I did good enough that they wanted me in the band right away. So now had you <laughs> learned guitar and bass at that point or, or were you sort of just aspirational in those other instruments? I was aspirational. It wasn't until later, like, I mean, at the, that time, no, it was all just kind of in my head. That's what I wanted to do. But I did kind of pick up Vicky's guitar we would kind of strum away I kind of learned when she was playing my sweet lord I kind of learned my sweet lord on the guitar and it was like oh, bar chords wow this is amazing it's really hard to do and of course it sounded like blink 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 but you know <laughs> gotta start somewhere mm. <laughs> as far as bass I think I used to pick up Amanda's bass and kind of just fiddle on it because yeah I, I kind of really wanted to be a bass player but then I thought nah it's not realistic so the drums appeared to me and there I was. <laughs> when you were growing up, did you and Vicky used to sing together? Yes, all the time, actually, because we, we were good Catholic girls, went to mass and we'd be in, you know, at the pew singing along with the choir. And we, um, we'd actually come up with harmonies to what they were singing. Just, just by a natural thing, I guess. Same with the radio. We'd be, our parents, would like to drive a lot we drive around and do some family trips radio was always on it was on in the car it was on in the house and uh i just remember sitting in the back of the car vicky and i singing together and we automatically go to one part or the other part together and so we'd be like fight like not fighting physically but no wait you sing that part no i'm gonna sing this part no wait i want to sing this part so it became this this like competition who's going to sing which part because we, we could both hear the different harmonies sisters add like an, an extra you know element to that because because your voices are are distinct from each other but there's also something about when when you hear them together they just sound really cool and the fact that you both kind of hit those harmonies as opposed to just wanting to sing the same parts or in unison makes it you know mm -hmm. the sort of richer thing that kind of became a trademark of the group yeah, it kind of does a funny organic thing when when sisters or brothers sing together because you you have that tone anyway, so you can you can definitely match it. In fact, many times when Vicky and I are doing recordings for other bands or or even for the Bangles, we'd all we'd get together and sing the same part and then do another take singing the higher part together, and it does this amazing thing where it kind of it does like a a phasing effect, which is kind of right. interesting. And uh, so we've done that many times. In fact, on many Bengal records, we were very much into the whole vocalizing arrangement thing. We just we wanted it to be more than just singing harmony. We wanted it to be actually like a, a musical piece, like instrumentation. 
So that was that was always a, a fun challenge to to okay, what are we gonna do on this song? Okay, let's say, okay, you sing that part, I'll sing that part, and then we'll switch parts. And then I'll sing the high part, you sing the low part. And so I guess you know, having my sibling there to sing along with, it really did help give it a special sound. Were you listening to a lot of pop rock with harmonies? You know, whether it was, you know, I mean, people people tend to throw out, you know, mamas and the papas and they talk about like LA groups with harmonies, but even the Beatles, I mean, there are a lot of harmonies in there and you guys obviously were Beatles fans. So mm-hmm. did you, did you, did you and Vicky listen to the same records and did you kind of sing along with those and kind of, kind of internalize those like the harmonies of like certain groups oh yeah definitely i mean like i said there was music playing it seemed like 24 7 in the house and our older sister pam was the was the old was the you know the first born the older one and she had um money she had like an allowance so she got to go and buy records and so she would be playing music all the time and of course it was the beatles it was you know then there's singer songwriters there's cat stevens there's uh, mamas and papas as you say i mean just just in so many folk rock groups we we listen to and i think a lot of stuff got internalized by just constantly hearing different you know musical styles and different records and it just gets in your blood <laughs> Joni Mitchell, you know, there's a lot of a lot of different outside influences. I mean, there's like Suzanne, I love Joni Mitchell and and Patti Smith. And, you know, all of us were definitely open to different sounds, different styles. Had you and Vicky started writing songs before you ended up connecting with Susanna through the the, the ad in the newspaper and the crisscross stuff that was going on there? Actually, Vicky was more the songwriter. Actually, she she started. I think she started writing when she was like six or seven or something like that. She was always playing around with her guitar and coming up with ideas. Um, she was, funnily enough, very very much influenced by the Cowsills. That's another one I should tell mm-hmm. you about as far as a vocal thing. Yeah, they were very much a part of our childhood because she loved the cow cells and of course she ended up marrying one of them go figure i was gonna say there's a full circle thing there with the continental drifters <laughs> and then marriage and uh yeah yeah i talked to peter Holsapple in an earlier one so adding oh did you whole, oh, i love peter adding yeah. to the whole uh you know cow cells connection yeah that's cool pretty much she was a writer i didn't start writing until later and that was after sue got involved i could do music and i still that's where i i mainly right is on is music but as far as lyrics i was always a bit uh, uh how do i do this vicky's a good editor she can edit what you want to say in a very short space whereas i always had a hard time with editing <laughs> did you have sort of a big sister little sister thing going on even in the band or did it sort of equalize once you were in a band together it was it was there it was it was always there. i think it's equalized it equalized like later on you know it, it's it was one of those things you just kind of when you grow up together you kind of act a certain way around each other or or that's right. what you're how you're used to dealing with things so um yeah that, that lasted a long time and then i i just remember a time I guess it was probably the early early to mid 80s. I finally just said to Vicky, leave me alone. Let me just do what I want to do. You know, because she's blessed her heart, love her to death. And uh, she but she was very protective of me. And, and you know, the, so the, the mother hand thing. And then finally, I was just like, I just I need to do my thing, too. And uh, she's totally respectful about that. And, and it's, it's been great. We, we work together really well. 
when Susanna Hoffs joined the group and you guys became the Bangs, later to become the Bangles, did you think at the time, oh, we're going to be like this big band? Or was it sort of, this is a fun thing to do for now and we'll just see? Oh, no, we were like, we're going to be the toppermost of the poppermost. We're going to be huge. <laughs> we're going to be on AM radio. <laughs> we're going to be on TV. Oh, yeah, we 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 definitely set our sights pretty high. We were not going to be like, oh, let's just do this for a year or two and then go off and have a boyfriend and blah, blah, blah. No, we were serious, very narrow-minded. Mm. We were going to do this for sure. Were you like, we're in the Paisley Underground as part of our posse? Or was that sort of something that sort of in <laughs> retrospect, people kind of, you know, put on that group? Actually, that was just something that was just kind of this crazy thing that just came together. It was just a bunch of friends getting together and and um, it became a scene, but it wasn't something that was calculated. I think it was Michael Corsio from Three O'Clock was the one who actually named it um, the Paisley Underground. I think that came from him. Um, but it was just like, we're like, oh, let's go see the last play. Let's go see Rain Parade. Let's go see uh, the Long Riders. You know, let's, they're, they're playing at the Whiskey or they're playing at the Roxy. And then we'd go and see them. And then, then it, they'd come see us when we were playing at whatever club it was. And it became this thing like, okay, let's, let's play together. Yeah, let's, let's, let's make this a thing. That, I mean, we did, I guess, in the end, we did kind of start making it, let's make it like a cool vibe, like this, like the Sunset Strip was in the 60s right. with everybody it's so cool everybody's hanging together hanging out let's play you know i'll open for you you open for me blah 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 and yeah it we, just, we did want to make it like a vibe thing but it wasn't like super calculated i think it just organically became that were the bands uh, competitive with each other not really i'm sure it was probably there just just naturally because that's what happens when somebody starts getting a little more popular there are people are like hmm why aren't we at that level, you know, but overall, I think the vibe was really supportive. So everybody right. pretty much supported each other. Because the Dream Syndicate was kind of first out of the gate, right? I think that the Days of Wine and Roses was set at the first of those albums to come out and get some. Yeah, pretty mention. much. Yeah. 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 They were great. I mean, I remember going and seeing them just the, the guitar was, I mean, it was just like, oh my God, it's the Velvet Underground reincarnated these guys are amazing i mean it was just it had such a amazing vibe to it and, and we loved it it was uh, that's not i love days of wine and rose it's one of my favorite records so yeah i talked to steve Wynn too and and i did toward the end of the interview and and i felt like i could ask him this since he'd actually covered the song but i said i said so what'd you do to inspire hero takes a fall and he, <laughs> and he was like well i was a little more you know, a little more arrogant back then and because he's super nice, but uh seriously, the nicest guy. I know I, when Vicky and Sue said that, I remember, oh, we wrote this song about Steve Wynn. I'm like, no, can't be. <laughs> but yeah, I, I suppose he had a, it's kind of an attitude thing. I mean, it's it, it just part of when you're growing up and you kind of, you know, when you're younger, you can tend to have a, a vibe and like an attitude. And I guess he was kind of channeling that, you know, <laughs> I love the fact that years later they covered it and, and you guys are singing background vocals on it. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all's good in the world. Yeah. Oh, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> so what was it like when you recorded that first EP? Uh, you know, you had the real world and, uh, you know, you were singing I'm in line and, you know, it's a really cool EP. Was that kind of hearing yourself coming out of the studio, sort of a transformative thing for you all? Yeah, actually, the first first single we did was "Getting Out of Hand," 
and Call right. On Me was the first single we did. And that was a very much a, a do-it-yourself project. We recorded that. In fact, I played bass on Getting Out of Hand, which is like my one and only recording, I think, on bass. Um, uh, it was, that was fun because it was, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to get this. So we had a whole plan. We're going to get this single out there and, and get hopefully get Rodney Bingenheimer to play it, which he did. Thank God. And and just start getting a vibe going, getting, getting out there and, and playing shows and try to actually start getting some sort of attention. And I think doing the EP was, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is the next step doing the EP. And we, you know, we figured out the songs. In fact, you know, um, apart from how's the air up there, we all, we all wrote some songs. I, I wrote on I'm in line, which was my first <laughs> attempt at writing a song and uh so you know i think it was a good thing because it was it was very much like a like the next step for us and it was just an ep so it wasn't an album and it was um unfortunately was on faulty products which was a <laughs> not a very good uh, label miles yeah, go go figure with a name like yeah. faulty products that it wouldn't come that's out what was so funny is that i thought well the name like it just it was perfect because the name really represented what happened i mean i overall i think i like the ep i like the vibe of it i like the fact that we were we were such we were so together as a unit when we recorded that and everybody was very much into the sound how sonically we wanted it to be and very in much in agreement with uh with with the songs and, the, and just it was just such a great vibe did it feel like kind of a democracy with you like where you know everyone you know all of you would sort of contribute songs and sing and sort of take turns with everything i think at that time yes it was definitely it was enjoyable because it was more of a democracy and even though vicky and sue or more of the songwriters and so did a, lot, a bit more singing on it um we all were like a unified group going in a certain direction together and uh, it was great and annette was with us on that and that was great she still didn't as a bass player she was not quite sure what she was doing she was learning but she was picking it up real fast and, uh, and and that had a really cool, cool vibe to it. It was very garage, very garagey sandy. <laughs> right. At what time did she? At what point did she leave and Michael come in? Um, pretty much soon after that, she just kind of decided she wanted to go in a different musical direction. And we were like, okay, you know, that's cool. That's what you want to do. We want you to be happy with what you're doing because there's no point in doing this if if people are unhappy. And then, so it took us a little while to to find a bass player, and then Michael came along, and and that was great. How did you How did you get connected with her? Um, through gotcha, now you're you're testing my memory here. <laughs> Actually, I, I think it was just it was she was like there in the scene as well. She was in different bands that we we knew about her. Um, actually, Vicky had met her through a mutual friend of ours because. She, Vicky was staying with a, fr a friend of ours, Joanna Dean, it, and she was known as Spock. And so it was the Spock Hotel, where a lot of people were coming and going. There was parties all the time, and all different musician friends would come and sleep on the couch or whatever. So, so Vicky was there at the time, and I think Michael came in at one point, was hanging out a lot, and they started talking. And pretty much, Vicky said, "We're looking for a bass player. You know, are are you available?" And she uh, 
came <laughs> we had a couple auditions she was one of the one of the people that we auditioned and, and it was just like oh my god she's amazing this is great had you guys been fans of the runaways yeah yeah i mean yeah kind of i mean i, I think vicky more than me maybe but yeah we were we we knew the runaways we thought they're <laughs> we like the runaways yeah so when she joined the band had you guys already gotten your major label deal we were i think we were in the process yeah of getting it or we had gotten it pretty much right before she got in the band did the label hook you guys up with david khan or how did that happen i think it was i think it was the label i think now i think back it was the label who who suggested him as a producer and it, david khan had done um some other bands i know he worked for translator and with rank and file and vicky knew rank and file she had right. their record and um so she was like oh they, i love these guys they sound really cool well let's let's try it let's try david Kahn. See, see how it is you know let's let's go with them so i was like okay sure i mean i like that record too it was a good record um but then working with them was a different story of course but um but yeah i think it initially came from from cbs sony whatever you guys wrote most of those songs and then you had a couple very cool covers which i'm assuming you guys would have chosen like like the merry-go-rounds live and uh, going down to liverpool they don't sound like songs that would be imposed on you by the label but i'm just guessing um live was definitely came from us because i remember that's one of like the early songs i learned on guitar and um that was one of my favorite songs from the 60s i just loved i loved the way he sang i love the song so it was one of those things that, i love the song it was so easy to play guitar and you could just go anywhere and just it just came out and it was great it's it just such a it, it reminded me of all the good things of the 60s the good feelings of the right. 60s you you, introduced, you you actually introduced me to Emmett Rhodes with that. I'd never heard Emmett Rhodes until that song. And oh, I was really? just like, what is this? I'm like, what is this song? This is cool. And then I realized what it was. It's like, the same thing with uh How's the Air Up There, which which I what is that Fleur de Lise or something? Like I, I discovered that through you guys too. So I was like, oh cool. Yeah, yeah. That was the actually because a lot of cool friends of ours you know, had cassettes of, of really you know, like nugget stuff, you know, uh, mm -hmm. things that were floating around that, that they found through other people. Cause obviously it's before YouTube and you can get any, any version of any song anywhere now, but at the time it's through friends. And I think one of our friends suggested or, or gave us a tape with the how's the air up there. And we're like, wow, what a great song. It's like the stones, but even better, you know? And, uh, so it, I think going down to Liverpool was a, more of a suggestion from the label just because it was kimberly rue and he i guess was probably maybe shopping some songs around but i remember thinking what an incredibly cool song and so we you know i was very much excited about doing a cover of that song and then you guys did a video of that with leonard nimoy as your chauffeur <laughs> yeah I, how did that happen well that was actually through Susanna's mom tamar who's who was a director in her own right and she of course right. i think the the nimoys were family friends and uh so it was one of those things where i guess sue knew his son adam um pretty well so it was a suggestion like what about getting you know leonard nimoy in as a, as a chauffeur because it was kind of a confused <laughs> video actually so but so that that idea floated around of course i'm like huge star trek fan I'm like yes please yes please and um so it was great to work with him because he was he was such a professional he was very much a 
got into his part, you know, and did the eyebrow thing and the whole, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was so much fun. But the problem was while we were making that video, Miles Copeland, our illustrious manager comes in and says, no girls, you have to be serious. This is about being on the dole in Liverpool. This is about being unemployed. You have to be serious. So it's like, how are we supposed to act when we're, we're supposed to be like, pop stars being driven around by Leonard Nimoy. Um, but we're, now we have to look like we're depressed pop stars who are unemployed. What? <laughs> yes, it was very confusing. <laughs> For that album in general, like how much did you feel like you were able to do what you wanted to do? And how much pressure did you feel from you know, the producer or the label to kind of conform to whatever, whatever they wanted? That's a good question. It was it was starting to get at that point after doing the EP, it was starting to feel more pressure because we were the with the major label, and um, so and suddenly it was like, okay, this is serious. We have to, you know, sound really good. We have to have be really professional. <laughs> um, but it, it started. To, you know, the working with David Conn was was rather difficult. He was. I guess, you know, maybe he had pressure himself and the record company liked to deliver something successful. And he was, it put a lot of pressure on us as far as I know, I remember singing, going down to Liverpool and singing it many, many, many times. And I kept thinking, this gotta be the take. And he, he would like triple track me, quadruple track me. And just trying to do the hey, now thing, you know, the little crack thing, which is hard to do at any time but having to do it over and over again it left me in tears he was mm. he was it would just be like sitting back in the um control booth or whatever a uh, control room pressing the button saying do it again do it again i mean no you know he didn't give us any kind of feedback like hey why don't you try this 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 and this it was just do it again so it's kind of a negative experience and and it wasn't just me vicky had a problem with it too it was just it was just so different than what we'd experienced recording before that right. it was it was suddenly we were taken aback like oh my god what's going on here is this what it's like being on a major label this all this stress and i think that got even more enhanced on the sec on the album after that on different light so on all over the place were the arrangements still pretty much the way you wanted them to be yeah, pretty much. I mean, I you know, David Com did add some interesting keyboard parts and had some ideas that were good. But I think because of the, the time period between the EP and the first record, we had all that time. We were on tours, many tours. So we were playing a lot of the songs live. And that's kind of how we figured out how the songs were going to be for the recording. You guys just sound like a great band on it. It sounds like a band record. And, and I think you guys covered uh, Love 7 and 7 Is when I saw you play live too, which I thought was cool. Oh yeah, uh -huh. yeah. I, I love doing that song. I mean, it's 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 tough, it's not easy, but I love it. It's great, it's so much fun. That's a drummer um, it's song funny. Yeah, it's a drummer song. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned More Than Meets Yeah, because that was an example of Vicky fighting with David Conn, because he was like, no, we'll just do it on keyboards. It's like, like a synth sound. She's like, no, it has to be a quartet. It has to be actual, you know, strings. And and so there's a couple of moments of confrontation, that's for sure. But I thank God Vicky stuck to her guns on that because it's, it's such a beautiful arrangement. I appreciate you saying that the, the album is very much like a band album and, the, and, you know, the short songs and kind of a revolver-esque kind of vibe, which I think is great. 
because yeah, the guitar parts are really cool. There's some some real ingenious guitar stuff going on, and I think David Glenn helped with some of those ideas too, which made it sound cool. I wish the drums had sounded better, but oh well. <laughs> Were you getting feedback at that time also on like how you presented yourself, like what you dressed as and stuff like that? Like, like the hero takes a fall video, you know, you guys are just like kind of, it's very sort of casual and, and, you know, it's not like the sort of glammed out thing at all. And, you know, later maybe there was more of that, but I'm wondering sort of how much feedback and pressure you were getting on sort of the image part of it at the same time as the musical part. We were getting a lot. I think I felt like at Hero Takes a Fall, we were kind of dressed in these clothes. It's like, oh, here, we're going to have this person dress you. And it wasn't like we were wearing our sort of crazy 60s things at that time for that video. They, we definitely had CBS slash Sony coming in and having their their designers, whatever, their, their people that did costume designers to do it huh. because I, re I remember that there's the shot of me playing the drums when we were up in downtown LA and I'm wearing this hat and I'm like, why am I wearing this hat? It's just like, that is not <laughs> something I would normally do, you know? That's funny. <laughs> so yeah, we were definitely starting, you know, and had the gloves, you know, the little Madonna gloves and stuff. And, and it was definitely starting, that was starting to happen. It was, we were not feeling ourselves. We were, start, we were feeling like somebody's trying to put, to put us together kind of thing. Interesting. I thought it was more likely that maybe you guys came up with that because it was kind of like you sort of had fun in a thrift store or something like that. It wasn't like, <laughs> oh my God, look how glamorous we are. It was just kind of quirky, which I liked. And maybe maybe they thought, well, now you, you guys aren't quirky anymore. But Well, I, I suppose there was probably elements of quirk in there from us because I think uh, Michael had, I don't know, a long shirt, shirt sweater thing on. And, and uh, yeah, I, th I think we had pieces that came from us. But somebody was putting it together, which we weren't used to. We were just used to doing our own stuff, right. you know, putting our own clothes together. So it was kind of like, huh, what's going on here? Um, and and that, you know, that, that kind of progressed too. But we, we ended up saying, okay, wait a minute. No, we want to wear what we want to wear. And we just started wearing different clothes and trying different styles. And it was the 80s, which we, it's amazing how you can get away with that kind of thing, which you, I mean, I don't know, now you probably can, but but like in the nineties, that wasn't a thing at all. In the, in the knots, it was, you know, the, the wacky look people were going back to the eighties because they loved the fact that at the eighties, big hair, wacky clothes, you know, right. <laughs> things that didn't go together. Yeah. And well, and it's funny because like, because, because all over the place is 84 and there's such a timestamp 1984 sound to so much that was coming out. It's like you guys like, you know, REM Reckoning was that year. Like those are right, albums yeah. that just kind of sound like they sort of exist in any time as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, whatever Flock of Seagulls was happening at that time or even, right, you know, right. even like what like Elvis Costello was doing that year where he suddenly went Cynthia and DM7s and all this stuff mm -hmm. and all these drum machines that, that people were using. So you were sort of immune from that at least at first. And and then, you know, there was, but it's the, the 80s just had such a distinct sonic and and stylistic imprint on bands that that wasn't happening like in the 90s or 2000s as much yeah definitely definitely and it's funny you mentioned the drum machine thing because that that didn't that wasn't apparent so much all over the place but definitely different light it suddenly was like okay you have to play with a drum machine okay the drum machine is going to replace your kick drum and it was like and for me that was like no don't 
you know, I don't want right. to be replaced. It was like the AI thing. I don't want to be replaced. Like I'm a human being. I want to be recorded as such and, and not have, I mean, I, I appreciate it now, but at the time it was, it was a, it was a constant struggle. When you went in to make different light, first of all, were you given the choice to work with David Kahn again? Or was it sort of like, okay, you guys are working with him again? No, it was, you guys going to work with them again. I didn't want to work with them, <laughs> but yeah, it was like, okay, look, this is, this is it. This is your sophomore record. This is the big push. You're going to have a number one song. You're going to, you know, this is the big deal. If you guys really are serious about this, you know, you got to work with this guy again. He's really good, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think at that time he, he became part of the A&R department. So Right. My memory, my recollection. Uh, so that was another thing was, okay, oh God, we got to work with him again. Oh, nightmare. <laughs> so did you feel like you, I mean, this is sort of obvious, I guess, but you guys felt like you were having more imposed upon you on this record than the previous one. I personally felt that. Yes. Even though we were, you know, we we're still all writing songs. I felt like that Sony was pushing songwriters on us more. Like, okay, here, this is a song written by so-and-so. Here's a song by so-and-so. I mean, there, you know, there's some, again, we would pick and choose and say, okay, if we, we need to do this cover, I really like this Jewel Share song. So, you know, we, we would pick the ones that sounded like less uh, an obvious thing that's not one of our songs, you know what I mean? It looked more of our style. I mean, even Manic Monday, you know, Prince gave us his cassette, a cassette of his band playing the song it's like oh well, well why don't you just sing over it we were like no we want to totally re-record it you know all tracks so which we did did he did he write that for the bangles or did he sort of have that having done you know one of those prince things that was there and he said you know what this would be a good bangle song i don't know i don't know the real story behind that but i do know he like he came to see us before or during the all over the place time um at the at the palace in hollywood and it was like this big thing like oh this, this somebody really special is gonna come is backstage to meet you and i'm thinking who you know like paul mccartney like who you know all these names in my head and i remember walking you know to, to the i guess it was like the balcony or somewhere and he was he was there and i I was thinking, wow, he's really short. But no, <laughs> I was like, it was it was stunning to meet him. It was just like the most amazing thing. But um, I think he was kind of at that time was checking out other bands, and he kind of liked the psychedelic thing we were we were you know that was part of our sound. He liked that kind of that that part of us. So I think Manic Monday either it's something he had and thought we would it would be a good fit for us, or he may have written it for us to do. I'm, I'm not really sure about that part, but it was, it was quite a compliment to, for him to say, Hey, I think you guys should do this song. But I thought it was funny. He was like, yeah, sure. We'd love to do that song, but we're going to do, we're going to re-record it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I guess that does fit in with that timeline. Cause he had purple rain in 84 and then he had around the world yeah. in a day, which was his like kind of psychedelic thing with raspberry beret and yes, pop life. Exactly. And this sounds like something that could have been, on that as I, yeah, well. I, I think that's what I think. I think it's, he already had it. I think it's part of all like the style he was, he was working on with all those other songs. And I think he just thought, Oh, well, I'm going to pitch it to the bangles because it would, I think it would work for them. So were you all like unambivalently like, Oh, this song is so cool. And it's Prince. This is going to be great for us. I think it was like, yeah, this song is great. And, uh, yeah, great for us. I don't know. That was one of those things where I'm, we were kind of concerned because it would get 
we knew that would get the attention, all the attention right. because it was Prince, you know. So we were a little um, unsure about that because we didn't want any attention taken away from the other songs on the record. And we didn't want to be seen, which unfortunately we were, <laughs> as not writing our own songs, because we do write our own songs. And right. um, I felt like that kind of took took attention away from, from the, the band's material. Right, because the first three singles were songs you guys didn't write that and then if you should knew what she wants and then walk like an egyptian and then you had and then you had your mm-hmm. cover of of big stars uh september girls which september was September girls yeah so. that was not a single yeah but uh but, but great song <laughs> of course right yeah no so yeah walk <laughs> down your street was the the original that became the single that was sort of later also yeah but. yeah that was later i think but i think that's kind of a consistent thing from the beginning where we as you as we discussed we just like to record other people's songs but like cool underground you know songs you've never heard before or not that familiar with and kind of make it our own which we kind of did from day one really so it wasn't just like oh they started doing that in different light we were doing that for ages but we just felt like the having the prince song there was like oh the big single manic monday and suddenly i just felt like Wait, but we're losing the band feel. We're losing that that camaraderie, that all for one and one for all kind of thing. And we were, I was worried that things were going to start going in a different direction. There is this sort of split between the songs that seem produced as like singles with synths on them, like If She Knew What She Wants, and then you're kind mm-hmm. of, you know, you're, you're more stripped down, rocking out the songs. Or even. I know. Did you feel that as you were making it? There was like, okay, here's the ones that we're able to do the way we normally do it and here are the ones where they're paying a little more attention because they're trying to turn these into singles. Yeah, definitely. I felt like it was starting to splinter a little bit because of that. It was like, Oh, Sony was like, okay, these, this sounds perfect. This is a single. Let's remix it like three times. And meanwhile, these other songs was like different light and uh, let it go. Which I, I, I wish that had been a single because to me, that was a, such a band song. It was the four of us wrote it. The four of us sang on it. And I know you can't do every song with like, you know, choir harmonies and you know, vocal parts. But but to me, it was like this. This is like this is embodies what the Bengals are. This is what we yeah. really are in my head. That's what we really were. And we were we all wrote together. We sang together. And uh, it's like the Partridge family. No, I'm kidding. Um, it, it was very much, you know, a group effort. And I was very upset at that time because i remember thinking you know why aren't there more songs like this why is this not getting attention why is it manic monday or if if she knew or or you know walking down your street which still felt didn't feel quite bangly to me you know why why not different light why didn't that get more attention and it, it's it was it was frustrating because it, i could i felt and i know vicky did too that that things were kind of starting to splinter a bit. Yeah, like walking down your street, the drums on that sound like there's, I don't know whether they're just miking you differently or whether there's actually a drum machine on there, but the, the, the sound on the drums of that compared to in a different light right before it, it's just like, it's just two different production <laughs> approaches. It really, it really does sound completely different because yeah, it was enhanced by a drum machine and, and I didn't like that. To me, that just sounded so stiff and and non-human and i mean i was playing along to it but you know it was an, it was a drum machine enhancement uh, whereas like different light or let it go was was me and it, so that was frustrating having other people coming in or, or or machines coming in it's so suddenly i felt like 
you know, what are, we're not a band anymore. We're, you know, we're like, you know, becoming just like a personality or, or, or visual thing and not necessarily a group and doing our own music. And I, I was did, worried about that happening. Did you all sort of feel that way or was it kind of split and was that part of the problem and that you know maybe more attention was being put on Susanna Hoffs and so that, that that's it's the sort of thing that she's not necessarily asking for it but it creates tension because you're like wait we were this democracy and now all of a sudden we're being treated like there's there's a front person which there isn't yep definitely I definitely felt that way I I I know Vicky and I were both like what's going on or this is very different than than the initial band that we had started you know um it was yeah it did cause some friction having Susanna be become the lead singer and the and the, the focal point of the band because that's not wasn't our intention at all that was we were we tried to as much as we could try to stop it but it was once the ball once it started rolling it was it was hard to stop were there a lot of outside musicians brought in for that album too? Oh, just a couple, just a couple people came, came in and, you know, guitar player, drummer, um, you know, it's just a couple, you know, person. I mean, they, to be honest, I know in a couple songs or at least one song, I could, didn't, couldn't play the drum part that well, but then I'm not a session musician. And, and, and it actually that song, in fact, it was not like you, um, was a song that I pictured it being completely different than it ended up on the record. And it became this song that David Kahn sort of got involved in and, and it just lost, it lost all meaning to me. And then having the drummer come in was like, like a double mm. whammy. <laughs> yeah. I noticed he, he took a songwriting credit on that. And I think walking down your street and I was thinking, Oh, it's sort of unusual for the producer to be taking songwriting credits, but what do I know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was one of those things that I wanted to work with the girls and I, was, I, I felt like, well, if I, if I don't go along with this, the song won't end up on the record. Now I wish I had, I had, wish I'd stuck to my guns and said, look, I don't want you involved. And it wouldn't have been on the record. And I could have made it sound much better later on. But at the time it was like, God, this is your big shot. This is your, this is your like last chance to really be successful. We have to give up a few things in order to, to make sure it happens. Cause it's, this is your time to, to, to get on the radio, to be successful. And of course, it doesn't always go the way you want it to go, but you know, mm. it was it, it got us out there. Well, the EP and all over the place, you sound like this very confident band. And this experience on different light did that undermine your confidence? Big time, yeah, yeah. I, I had a, a hard time uh, coming back after that, making that record. It was, it was my confidence was like very small. I. I didn't feel like I was a good drummer anymore. And as far as the singing, you know, David Khan said quite a few very rude things about my voice. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I love your know. voice. He's oh, wrong. Thank you. I'm not in charge yeah, of these wrong. things. I'm not doing A&R for Columbia, but, but <laughs> you know, I, I, always you look, I always look forward to the stuff you sang. So, I mean, I look forward to all of it. Everyone, all, the, all four of you have great voices. I mean, like, you know, even the Beatles hit Ringo, who's like charming, but you all, you're all better than Ringo. <laughs> oh, poor Ringo. <laughs> no, I love Ringo, but you know, but there's a reason there are three part harmonies in the Beatles and you guys had four part yeah. harmonies. I know, I know, I know. I just felt, it, but it was just, there was just so much bullshit going on, and 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 with the with the record company, too many too many chefs in the kitchen, too many people trying to come and manipulate the sound and the image, 
And it was just, it was sad because I, I could really see it happening. And I was so frustrated, like, why is this happening to us? You know, and, and you just feel like, okay, this is, this is what we have to do in order to get successful. And, so, and, and, and I don't know if that's because we were all women, you know, that's the other well, that thing. was my next, that was my next question. Uh, I was going to come back to it. I was going uh-huh. to say, and I was going to say that it's like, again, one of these things that seems like it's kind of obvious, but do you think they would have been doing this to you if you weren't a female band? Uh, that's what I wonder. I mean, it's like, I feel like, God, if we were all guys, well, first of all, first of all, I would have been like, well, fuck you. Well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but, you know, because we were, you know, all girls, they, it's and it was definitely at that time it's so different now well not so different but it's definitely different now but at that time it's such a uh, male dominated um industry that trying to do anything as a as a female musician or even a female band was very difficult and we had to kind of work our way into doing things even though that meant giving up a few things just to get the success it was tough. It, it was we, we had a hard time with with the whole um, gender thing, unfortunately. So, were they telling you at that point, you know, oh, you, this is what you need to look like, and this is what you, how you need to dress, and all that sort of thing? Well, there were elements of that, but we would we would still fight against it. But yeah, there were elements of, of okay, wear this. You got to wear this. You got to look like this. You got to put your hair, you know, puff up your hair, but look, uh, yeah, we we had a lot of people trying to, trying to direct us, um, to look a certain way, but we, we kind of, we would constantly fight against it. It was a constant battle. It was very much like, okay, let's try to make you into this, this sexy female thing. And the whole time was, we're not, you know, no, we're not into that. We don't want to be like sex symbols. Although I think Susanna might've slightly gone in that. It got into that, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was frustrating, but you're right about the questions. We, I mean, it was, it was torturous having to do all that press at the time because it was those kind of questions like, you know, Oh, who slept with Prince? Oh, um, you know, like with um, everything, the album, everything. Oh, Susanna sang the whole record in the new. And it's like, nobody's talking about the music. They're talking about, something they heard or something sexual and it was it, it used to really frustrate me because it's like come on we're more than just four girls you know getting all dolled up for an album cover or whatever we're we're musicians we're songwriters we're singers and it, it's and so the whole time it was a constant battle trying to show that hey we're more than just being right sexy. Producer on on everything was yeah David Sigerson David David did you guys know him or was that also something where the label came and said all right we got to no, work for you no this, this was I think proved through mutual friends we we heard about him and and he I'm I had sure. a great time working with David he was he was really good he was a lot more positive he was a lot more okay you know do what you do what you want to do play what you want to play he he yeah he was a he was a good producer that kind of helped get through you know the next record because of all the damage that was done um he uh yeah he's great and i think he he opened up a little bit more um ideas we ha- we were able to, to express more ideas and express ourselves more on that on everything 
What was your feeling going into that record? I mean, did 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 you all think, oh, okay, we just had this big success and now we're going to build on it? Or was it, were you sort of tight at this point? Like, uh, we feel kind of bruised by the last experience. Mm, kind of bruised, but, but looking forward to working with a new producer and we'd all written more songs. And, but unfortunately what I loved about everything was this, it sounded better. It had a better recording vibe, but it was also getting a bit more singular, like, like, okay, this is Michael's song. This is Sue's song. This is my song. This is right. Vicky's song. And Vicky and I tried to write a couple songs together and I think Vicky and Sue did, but and then we were writing with outside writers more and it sort of suddenly became like more like the white album kind of thing. It was, it was more, okay, these are these, this person's song and that person's song. And it suddenly lost that band element. Yeah. How did, how did all those outside writers come in? Was that, was that each of you just thinking, Oh, I'd like to collaborate with others. Or was that the label saying, Hey, why don't you go work with Lona Navarro or, you know, this other person? No, that's hanging with friends and like writing with other people. Um, I think that's what, what that was. It was basically, as you say, just trying to branch out a little and write with other people and work with other musicians and just, just trying to expand, expand our horizons, you know? Right. <laughs> Well, I was thinking also about how, like, all over the place, there's this energy in this, which is like, don't mess with us, you you crappy guys. You know, like, like there are a lot of sort of, like, embittered, you know, like, don't be a jerk songs. And everything is more kind of like like the, the first two singles on this, like, in your room, I'm going to show you how to be a boy and eternal flame. Because it's much more like, oh, you know, we're it, it's it's a happier vibe. And I'm wondering if that was something that was sort of conscious or just just those were just the songs or whether that was or the, whether it was like intentional like okay we're we're going to be sort of this more romantic band i i think it was just the whatever was coming out at the time i don't think it was intentional i think you know we were all writing having romantic experiences and being on the road and stuff and i think this just something that happens when you get older you know and I mean, I, I wrote "Be with You" with um, Walker Iglehart, who was our keyboard player, and that was that was actually a single. And um, right. that, again, it's very much a romantic song. I think we were all just like going through different romantic experiences at that time, and that's probably why it came out like that. So you were actually in a happier place, so that's good. Definitely in a happier place, as far as certain elements, but it was there was still conflict within the band. And it was, unfortunately, it was kind of like, that was it for the Bengals because it was, there was too much focus on Susanna and, and be, being a certain way. And we were even, even though we were trying to fight that constantly, it just wasn't enough. What did you think of the song Eternal Flame when you first heard it? I thought it was a beautiful song, but I also had this feeling in my stomach, like, oh God, it's Sue's song. It's going to, this is going to be, this is really going to put the, the dagger in the Ben concept, you know? suddenly this like i mean it's a beautiful ballad it's gorgeous it's well written um and it's you know she did a great job in the vocal but it was just it felt like kind of like a <laughs> kind of like the nail in the coffin really as far as the bangles go <laughs> did you think at the time oh like like just in general when songs came out whether it was eternal flame or walk like an egyptian did you think oh my god that's gonna be a huge smash or was it more like what Walk Like an Egyptian was, I, for me personally, and not a great experience. So I, I kind of didn't want it to be a, a successful thing because that was a David Kahn thing where it, he basically auditioned us all as vocalists doing a verse. 
and and I lost the audition. <laughs> so and then plus it was a drum machine, even though I helped program the drum part. It was just like, God, I'm not singing on it, I'm not playing on it. What the I didn't write it? What the hell? You know, it was like it felt I felt so distant from that song. So I didn't really care if it was number one. Eternal Flame, I I knew it was gonna be a biggie. I just had this this feeling that, you know, this this is like this is classic, you know, romantic ballad. It's gonna be huge. It's the big ballad. People will have their eternal flames in the in the audience with their lighters. And... Yeah, everybody at the time had their lighters. Now they have their phones. You know, <laughs> <laughs> people got married to that song. You know, it's, oh, I remember that. Oh, that's when I first fell in love. It's an, un, it's, so, it's an undeniable song. Be with you as a getting single. too old. Yeah, Be that was the third single. <laughs> you sang that one. Yeah, I sang that one. I wrote that one. Sang that one. But it, again, it was on the heels of eternal flame so that helped it a lot and uh unfortunately just it kind of got buried because we were we had new management who uh, <laughs> i wish we never had these people but they uh were very much oh yeah okay we, we got sue now so let's kill the bangles you know pretty much you know took one of her and there was this whole thing where where uh, we had our last meeting um with the manage at the management's house and um basically they what they did is split michael and Susanna in one way and vicky and i in the other and we were vicky and i were basically told the band's breaking up because they want to pursue other things it was crazy so and so so this was so there was no like sort of big incident or blow up that precipitated the bangles breaking up right no this was this was something that that was in the works for a while i mean going on tour it was just like you know I'm surprised we didn't all have ulcers. You know, we would, it, it wasn't like we would sh yeah, shout at each other and yell or like punch each other out or anything. We, it, the Bengals did things in a different way. It was more manipulation and quiet anger and, and, you know, just kept it all inside. It's, so I think it was ready to explode anyway. Hmm. It just took a while. You just guys just had a meeting, or you were called into a meeting, and it's like, okay, this 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 band is dissolved, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, pretty much, because we were supposed to do a tour. We, Vicky and I thought we were going to just go to this meeting, discuss of doing a tour in in Australia, which we'd never been, and we, it was, you know, we had this this tour planned, and the tickets were all selling out, and yada yada yada, and then then the management were like, oh no, we're not selling in uh all in australia so so we're, we're canceling that tour and then and then sue was son sue and mickey were expressing themselves like we're really unhappy with the band with the way things are and i want to go do more singing and it's like well aren't you already doing a lot of singing <laughs> it was very it was a strange situation because we felt very much like vicky and i were very much told that the band was over no discussion within the band it was strange yeah, and it was it was a meeting with with managers and lawyers as opposed to the four of you just having a talk. Exactly, we never had the band talk of like, okay, let's sit down and discuss what's going on and how we feel. Because you know, our big thing was, oh, you know, if somebody's not happy in the band, then then they shouldn't be doing it anymore. And then like, okay, why didn't we have a discussion as a band first before the managers and the, the lawyer and whoever got involved? It was crazy. 
<laughs> did you all have that discussion later? I mean, obviously you got gotten back together a few times and did you have the sort of like the conversation that you should have had earlier where you're like, well, wait, what were you really unhappy about? And, oh, you know, and that sort of thing. Or did you just sort of get back together and like, ah, that's in the past. We're not even going to talk about it. It was, it was kind of both actually. Cause it was like nine years later, you know, we'd all done gone up done our different things and, you know, had kids. And in fact, I remember getting back together with Sue and just talking about, you know, being moms. <laughs> so that kind of was the, the start of that. And then she wanted Vicky to get back, you know, she kept calling Vicky and Vicky's like, I don't want to do this. I can't imagine singing walk like an Egyptian anymore, blah, blah, blah. But we ended up all coming back together. And because it'd been like nine years that we were apart, it was, was like water under the bridge. And we just, we did discuss things though. We just discussed how we felt at the time. And it kind of really was good because it, it definitely aired out all those problems and besides once you have kids and you have all that perspective it it doesn't really matter anymore it means so so little so what was it that Susanna and then Michael what were they unhappy about at the time well I don't know I think I think they were probably manipulated by the management into like oh hey you know you guys and this isn't working out with the Peterson sister I I don't know because I wasn't in their skins but but it seemed to me they were not happy with um they wanted to do their own things basically i think Susanna wanted to do more more songs that were her songs you know without having to share it with three other people and and right. i think the management from what i recall it felt like the management had sort of gone to sue and mickey or michael and said look you know i want to get let's i'll get you guys record deals you know you're on your own you get record deals you get this great record deal for you blah 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 and i think michael was she was kind of she was always a bit of a a bit of a loner with us i mean she kind of would do her own thing anyway she'd kind of hang out with her you know go off on her own and, and do things and so i think for her she was just kind of tired of the whole thing the whole all yeah. the bullshit and you no know. Yeah, I mean, her playing and singing with you sounded like they really meshed well, but her songwriting always sounded like it was like its own thing. Like, it, I didn't see hear her like co-writing songs with you guys, and it seemed like her her stuff was very like they they kind of were off on their own a little bit. Yeah, she was very much soloistic when it came to writing. That's what, the way she liked to do it. She wasn't really a partner writer. She tend to she would tend to do stuff on her own more. Yeah. And then, you know, which is fine. It's it just it was just the way the whole thing was presented to to me and Vicky, like basically being told that the band's broken up. It, it, that's just what made me go, what in the world? I mean, how did this happen? <laughs> how did you how did you deal with that at the time? Oh, man, I, I spent like at least three months to six months of just not listening to music. I didn't want to have anything to do with music. It was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do music anymore. I think I took art classes and uh, just, I had to do, just had to do something different. I just couldn't deal with it. It was, it was heartbreaking. At what point did you pick up your drumsticks again? Probably, I'm trying to think, it was 89, 90. I, I think I got more into playing guitar because I was doing more songwriting than guitar. So I started playing that more. Um, probably a couple of years later, a few, few years later, I, I, I started drumming again. But it was actually doing a bit more guitar playing. Did, did you and Vicky commiserate together during all this time? I mean, I remember seeing her with the Continental Drifters in the early 90s when I would go down to South by Southwest. But right. were you two kind of helpful with each other at that time? 
I think at that time we kind of took some space from each other too. And just kind of, she went off, did continental drifters. I did. I worked with Gina shock for a little bit, which, you know, didn't turn out very well, but, um, I, you know, wrote songs with her, did some work with her. And then I got together with Siobhan Marr, who was in a band called river city people in England. And, uh, we got together and came up with kindred spirit. And so that was, that was a good, you know, project to have to get me out of the, the, Expangle world right. <laughs> and into something new and working with different people. And, uh, but at that, that's about like 92, 93, Vicky and I started talking a lot more and, and sort of, you know, talk about each other's projects and stuff. So we, yeah, we, we reconnected around that time. Was it, was it difficult to have the four of you get back together again, eventually? I mean, I think you played sort of like around like 99 or 2000 and Doll, yeah. Doll Revolution came out in 2003. Like, what was mm -hmm. that process like to sort of get everyone on the same page and get over those feelings? Well, that was, again, uh, Suzanne and I got together talking again about being right. parent, parents and moms and having kids and what you deal with. And, and we started actually writing together a bit. And, uh, and Vicky, of course, was the most reluctant one. I, I think Michael, Michael was kind of doing her own thing and, and we couldn't get a hold of her for a while. I think she was hard to get a hold of. And then eventually Vicky and Suzanne and I got together and we wrote the song, get the girl for the Austin Powers film. Right. And then I remember we, you know, we wrote it and then we were going to record it. And I remember Michael coming into the, to the session recording session it was like so great to see her again she looked great and she was in, in a good mental state and um so we, we we recorded the song and all the old jokes came out you know like the old things you used to say on tour you know the silly things i can't even like remember what they were but i mean just really dumb things you used to say to each other on tour it's like they all came out again and suddenly it was like the ice was broken and and it was like oh yeah we're back and everybody felt really good. How did you enjoy, enjoy doing that album? Like, did that feel like a sort of lower pressure thing than, you know, the last ones you were doing for CBS? Oh yeah, definitely. That it was fun because we, we had a, we rented a house I think in Beverly Hills somewhere. And it was like a really cool kind of mid century sixties kind of house. And uh, we sort of, we made it our own. We put our, you know, blankets and, and Indian print um, fabrics around and, and had a little, the little drum room and the, 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 the control, because by that time you're like pro tools. So it was, you know, the control room went everywhere you went and it had a swimming pool and it would, it would just made it like feel like a family vibe. And it was, it was very comforting to be, in a, you know, recording in a house versus the, the studio pressure with the red light going on and, so that was nice. That was a nice change. And I don't know, it was, it was fun. We worked with Brad Wood and he was, you know, he was himself a drummer. So that was kind of fun working with him. Right. And it was, it was very much, everybody had an idea, you know, it's like, okay, I want to sing the song and I don't want anybody in the room. Okay. That's cool. And uh, that everybody would, would pitch in ideas and it very much worked as a unit again. So it was, it was great to like, it came full circle, you know, yeah, Brad, I knew from Chicago, and obviously he's he, he seems like a, a a like not a David Kahn like guy who's going to tell you how to play everything. Not at all. He was a very cool dude, and it was really it was lovely working with him. Playing out live, like was that? Did that feel like getting back on the bicycle sort of thing too? Oh yeah, yeah. It, it was it was good. I think having that big break really kind of rejuvenated the Bengals. It just was it was great to 
get back out there and play. So, and then you did Sweetheart of the Sun in 2011. Um, mm-hmm. And that was just the three of you. This kind of out of like that time context and, and you were able to sort of just sound what you want to sound like, right? Yeah, pretty much. It was just kind of, you know, like, okay, let's do these songs. And now we have these songs and, and, and uh, we did some couple of covers and we worked with Matthew Sweet, who, you know, smoked a lot right. of pot. So it was definitely <laughs> very much a, Ooh, calming vibe. <laughs> In fact, that was word I was playing everything too slow because you know contact high and all that. <laughs> but it was it, again, it was at a house. It was at his house, and it was a more relaxed atmosphere. I mean, I must prefer, must admit, I prefer to record at at a house in a house environment versus a studio because it's just studios just make me think of eighties and stress, you know. Right. And uh, it would, so had Matthew and Susanna already done those covers records, or at least the first of those by the time you did I, that record? Yeah, I think they might have done two of them by that time. I can't remember. Or at least they one and they were working on the second or something. But yeah, they'd already worked on that together. Semi-recently, I, I flew to Omaha, Nebraska, where he lives, and, and actually played on some of his songs on, on one of his later records, which was kind oh. of fun. Yeah, I've talked to Rick Menk. I've actually seen him at uh, mm. this record store he owns in the the um, Minneapolis area, and so I'm just and so I was like, like, yeah, you play on a lot of that that Matthew Sweet stuff. Yeah, too, that's so. right. He does too. Mm-hmm. Was he making a lot of suggestions on arrangements and stuff, or was he more just you know do what you want to do? He certainly yeah. seems in sync with with your you know your aesthetic. I think that's what it is. He's just more in sync with what we do, and so it, he didn't really have to suggest things. He might think of an idea, like a guitar idea or, or sing something and we'd be like, Oh yeah, that's, that sounds great. And that would work really well here. Uh, but pretty much he, he let us do our own thing. Cause I, as I recall for sweetheart, we were recording cause we didn't have bass, a bass player with us. So we were, when we were doing the, the live tracking, it was basically Vicky and I doing the tracking and then Sue, sometimes Sue would come and do the rhythm guitar, but it was, it was very, it was a different way of, of recording for me having this guitar and drums. So that was kind of fun. So over over the years, do you feel like your approach to songwriting or singing have changed or is it pretty much, you know, you, you do it the way you do it and just time has passed in the meantime? I think I pretty much do it the way I do it. Um, I think musically I've, I've gotten more in tune with different styles and different ways of doing things, um, which I didn't know. I mean, you know, I, I, again, I'm not, I don't write all the time and, and shame on me. I should do it more often, but um, it's, I still think I'm, I musically, I think I've, I've gotten a bit better, but lyrically, I still have a hard time writing lyrics without them sounding really boring. <laughs> I think that's really hard. Do you write the music and then try to fit the words to the music? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Sometimes I'll, I'll like write a, a poem and <laughs> like a bunch of lines. And sometimes I can think of music to the what's existing already on paper. But usually I come up with a, a riff or a chord idea or, or a melody or something like that. And then I'll, I'll try to fit the words in as best as I can. <laughs> and do you do you write when you don't have a project in front of you? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I'll just go for a walk and something will pop into my head like a melody I'm like, Oh, Oh, that's great. I have to remember that. And then I go home and put it on my iPhone because if I don't do that, it'll be gone in a nanosecond. So yeah. Cause it's been like a dozen years since the last 
time flies as you get older, but it's been like a dozen years since the last Bengals record. If 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 mm-hmm. you guys got together now, would you say, all right, here here are some songs I got ready to go? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I mean, I tend to write still kind of in that mode and kind of in the, the 60s, you know, pop. I'm I'm pretty much a pop queen. I love 60s stuff and and I love I love the uh the power pop thing. So I'm pretty much I'm always writing in that vein more. I'd like to write something a bit more dark and mysterious and, and you know, depressing, but I can't, I haven't been able to do that yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> do you, do you see guys getting together and, you know, recording another album or touring again or any of that? Not at this point, because I, I think everybody's so involved doing their own things and different, different projects. I don't know. I don't, you know, I mean, it's nothing, there's no, closed door this time like there was in 89 when it was all shut down but i i don't i don't see it happening now but who knows it could it could happen in the future who knows would you like to i i'd always like to it's i mean the Bengals have always been had a special place in my heart and um yeah I'd, i'd like to do it again i'd love to go play live again with them but but part of me is like okay i'm kind of working with different people now and it's it's that's nice too so the last thing you did, I we we talked about this at the top of it. Uh, you had that three mm-hmm. by four record. So mm-hmm. you, it's really awesome uh, cover of uh, Dream Syndicate's uh, "That's What You Always Say," and uh, some other ones on there too. But that's that's like the last time you guys were in the studio together, right? Yeah, I guess that was it. Um, that was ages ago now. Oh, God, you're right about time flying. Yeah, that was pretty much it. Yeah, that was the last time we we recorded something together. There's all sorts of stuff where I'm like, oh, that was like a year earlier. And then I'm like, wait a minute. No, it was before the pandemic. The pandemic was three years ago. So it's at least three Isn't years ago. Isn't that crazy? Oh my so God. it just, because you thought at the time it was just going to last like a few months. And now three years later, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, what happened? So, yep, that's how it works, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> do you, do you yeah. go back and listen to any of your work with the Bengals and, enjoy it sometimes sometimes when i go i I mean i have a shed that i go practice in and sometimes i go oh god i'm you know i'm gonna go play how's the air up there just because and and i'll I'll play to the ep or to all over the place and and uh you know just kind of just to refresh my memory and try to see if i can remember to play those parts um i haven't done seven and seven is yet but that will come later (laughs) i gotta build up to that one (laughs) do you you look back do you look back on this all as like a good experience? Good and bad. Yeah. It's, it, it was a good experience overall. I, you know, it had bad moments, but it, I mean, I think we were very lucky because it's very hard to be successful, a successful band. It's, it's incredibly difficult. It's like anything in art. It's like, if you can be successful, that's amazing. Um, but yeah, so I mean, we were lucky, but we also worked very, very hard to get to where we were. And yeah, overall, I think it was a good experience. Was there one moment you can look back on and think that was a, that was a moment where I was like, I'm happy. We've done it. This is awesome. There's a couple of those. One in particular, I think, was when we won that Brit Award and uh, we were in England and and it was we were the best international band. That was the, the, the category, I guess. And it was 
86, I want to say. I could be wrong. I don't know. Anyway, it was, it was great. We were in England and it was like, you know, Kate Bush was there and Eric Clapton. And anyway, um, the, you know, we, we were on stage with all these amazing people that we totally respect. Peter, Peter Gabriel was there. Uh, it was just, it was one of those moments where like pinch me. I cannot believe we're on stage with all these amazing people. And, and we've been, we're, we're like kind of on their level. You know what I mean? I felt like we were accepted. And especially being in England, because England, the press in England tend to really <laughs> knock you down. Uh, mm. So it was kind of like, ah, we, this is this is a great moment. And that's where so much of the music you love came from anyway. So exactly. So it was kind of like nice. It's a nice appreciation for us. Nice. I really appreciate you talking to me, you know, and letting me nerd out on this stuff with the, the bangles. <laughs> but uh, you, you've okay. done a lot of great, great stuff. And I'm. I'm sorry. Anyone said anything negative to you about your singing or your playing? Because they're awesome. So, <laughs> so now you know for sure. But uh, well, thank just, you, uh, Mark. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, and it was fun seeing you when you played at, at uh, Metro for that uh, Hot Stove Cool Music Show. So you'll have to come yeah. in for some other Chicago thing again. Yeah, I definitely. Want to, I, I'd love to do that again. That was. That, I had a great time. It was a great bunch of people, and it was. It was. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do that again. Enjoyable. Great. Thank you so much. Bye. That's it for episode 73 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Debbie Peterson for sharing her perspective of the roller coaster ride that was the Bangles. Go to thebangles.com to learn more about the group and to order music, such as limited edition colored vinyl versions of their last two albums, Doll Revolution and Sweetheart of the Sun. There's also merch to be had, as well as DVDs. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, about whom there's more than meets the eye. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you hear about upcoming events and episodes. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.